Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. This is episode 34. Today we spend the episode discussing the recently announced Democratic candidates for president, to include Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, and Tulsi Gabbard. We take a look at their backgrounds, their records on foreign policy, their connections to the national security state, and specifically regarding Tulsi Gabbard, we examine her military career. Rifle upon my shoulder And a rucksack on my back Bullets, shells and shrapnel And a hellhound on my track When I made it to my home place I found triumph Shining city stood a fortress on a hill. My name is Henry, and I'd like to welcome you to Fortress on a Hill. My co-hosts, Danny, BT, and myself are three leftist American combat veterans who scour the news headlines looking for stories related to the military and veteran communities of the United States. But you're not going to hear the typical military tropes here. Here, we take the military and veteran headlines of the day and clear out some of the bullshit. We ask hard questions of our leaders and demand an end to the militarism that has permeated our society. Our country has a military budget of $750 billion, three times more than China, seven times more than Russia, while American infrastructure and domestic policy languish and decay in the era of Donald Trump. However, Big Don is only the latest in a long line of presidential warmongers. Our country has lost more than enough to regime change and military operations the world over. Operations that only take the lives of innocents while providing no real protection from threats to our homeland. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Niger, and the list goes on. It's time for a change. Thank you for joining us. And so speaking of... Uh trying to find leaders with more of a um, more of an anti-war perspective. Uh, I think it's time we talk about uh, three recent uh, announcees uh, for our, that are running for president in the democratic party. Danny, uh, what, are, what are you thinking about that? So, wow, this is going to be a crowded democratic field. I, I think that's obvious. Okay. Right. At this point. Um, Usually, traditionally, um, of late, it's been the Republican Party that has had the more crowded um, primary field of candidates in the presidential election, right? That's, that's generally been true, I believe. Um, I think if I, was a, if I was a betting man, there's already four people who've essentially announced either their candidacy or an exploratory committee, which means their candidacy. Um, and... I think it's going to be a really interesting mix. Uh, I'm scared. I'm scared that the the um, that the Democrats are going to eat their own like they always do. They kind of eat their young. They turn on each other very quickly, as I've learned uh, on the internet, of course, as a public writer. But uh, but really, um, I, I think there are um, there are some concerns out there. What what do we know? Well, we know already that three of the um, three of the announced candidates are women. And that's interesting. Three out of four of the, of the announced uh, candidates are women. Um, two out of three of those, the two that I'm going to talk about, uh, have a relatively flimsy uh, record. Flimsy is the wrong word. Uh, uh, they don't have a very uh, strong record on foreign policy. It's not their forte. It's not where they've made their names or their careers, right? Um, and that's Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, 
um, 52-year-old uh, U.S. senator from New York, previously a congresswoman from upstate New York, which for those of you who are not from New York, um, upstate New York is a very, very different flavor from the city. Okay, so New York, uh, New York City is about half the population of the, the entire state, but they have almost nothing in common. Okay, the two, uh, the two places. So that's one, and then the other one is Liz Warren, senator from Massachusetts, uh, former economics professor at Harvard. Um, we talked about her last week, so we're only going to touch on her a little today. But neither of these women has made their career on foreign policy. For the most part, both of them are domestic policy folks. Um, both uh, portray themselves as very liberal, and on domestic policy that has mostly been true. Okay, they've mostly been on the left end of their uh, of their respective parties. Um, they both want you to believe that they are the most liberal senator in the Senate. Okay, maybe besides Bernie Sanders because he's you know actually an out avowed socialist or a democratic socialist. So here are, here are my concerns. Number one. Um, a relative inexperience on foreign policy, not not very strong stance on foreign policy so far from either of these women. And number two, um, a couple of things in their past that are disconcerting. And three, this this feeling I have, like I said, that the left is going to eat its own in this election, that we're going to be so I'm saying we, but you know, I guess we tend to lean left on these issues. But that 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 the Democratic Party, the liberal wing of the American political spectrum, is going to be so in search of a purity, right? A pure, perfect candidate that they'll end up dividing, staying home on election day and losing again to uh, Mr. Trump. So let's start with Liz Warren. We uh, already talked about her last week. She is um, against the war in Afghanistan and, and, and actually supports the president pulling out of Syria. So like kudos to Liz Warren for unlike many of her Democratic colleagues, being willing to agree with Donald Trump. <gasps> Agree with Donald Trump for once, right? Which, which was, I think, a really, really good thing. Absolutely, on her that she was willing to put put issues ahead of politics. So I like that. Uh, but then again, she's wildly pro-Israel. Ugh. Here we go. And I'm, again, I'm not anti-Israel. I'm just pro-Palestine. Yeah. Just pro-human rights, right? I'm not anti-Israeli. I'm not anti-Jewish. Although I constantly get told I'm an anti-Semite because God forbid you critique the right-wing fucking wild nationalist theocracy of Benjamin Netanyahu, right? Uh, but but that, this is a common problem. But she's awful. Her, her public comments on Israel have been awful. She won't call for the stop of settlements, which are illegal under national law. She won't criticize the wild mismatch of civilian casualties on the Palestinian side versus the Israeli side, okay, which is a, just a, an absolute humanitarian disaster. And so, wow, what does that tell us? I mean, that worries me. That means that she's probably in the pocket of the Israel lobby, which is one of the most powerful lobbying institutions in the United States. And it makes me worry about her malleability uh, to lobbyists on other foreign policy issues. So that's my concern with her. Next, we got to talk about Kirsten Gillibrand. I don't really know a whole lot about her foreign policy, and I'm a little embarrassed to say that because I tend to know a lot about these candidates. Um, I've been to her website and I've listened to a few speeches on YouTube. Um, she has come out for pulling the troops out of Afghanistan. Um, and I haven't heard any public statements on Syria, although she is relatively on the left for her party, which is, I think, a good thing in this instance. Um, so she wants to portray herself as the most liberal Democratic senator. I've heard her say it. And you know what her argument is? She says, the reason I'm the most liberal Democratic senator, remember, this is a search for purity. Make no mistake. Liberals can be just as purist, just as overbearing um, as, as conservatives. Okay, They look for the perfect candidate, and anybody who's ever said something they disagree with, they just shut them down. right? Um, and that's just the reality. They, they, they come out against free speech just like, uh, just like conservatives do, although maybe not quite as bad. So problem with Gillibrand, so Gillibrand says she's the most liberal because she's the only person in Congress or in the Senate who voted against every single one of Trump's nominees, every single one of Trump's appointments, right? Um, so that, that is, right, that is a, a, a powerful statement, but I'm not sure it says a whole lot about foreign policy. I mean, yes, she did vote against Mattis, 
when most Democrats voted for him. Okay, and kudos to her for that as well. But I'm not so sure that voting against Trump candidates or Trump cabinet officials is necessarily proof that you're the most liberal. I I think we need something more tangible and policy. Absolutely. Here's what's going to happen with Gillibrand. Uh, Surprise, surprise, everybody. We are going to hear that she's not liberal enough because remember what I said about upstate New York. It's very rural. It's very different from downstate. It's very different from the city. It's very conservative relative to New York City. There's a lot of trees and there's a lot of bigots. That's what they have upstate New York. Okay. (laughs) And Gillibrand comes from a relatively rural district. She was a congresswoman first. While she was a congresswoman from New York, she was either a member of or said positive things about the NRA. And her positions on gun control were much more conservative than they weren't wildly conservative. Let's not exaggerate. They were more conservative than the Democratic Party's position today. And they are going to throw that in her face. People to her left, the purity seekers in the party, are going to go back to her past. Just like we're going to talk about with your candidate, Henry, they're going to go back to her past. They're going to dig this up and they're going to throw it out there and they're going to say she doesn't have empathy for the Parkland school shooting and all that. Now, to her credit, Gillibrand has come out and said that she renounces her former opinions and that she's evolved on the issue. That's an old Obama term, right? I've evolved on the issue of gay marriage. I think that's an interesting Mm -hmm. term to use, especially when one of our parties doesn't even believe in evolution. But that's a separate issue for us to grapple with in another episode when we talk about madness and the Republican Party. But anyway, that, that's what I want to say about Gillibrand. So the, the takeaway is this. Uh, we need to learn more about these two women uh, with regard to foreign policy. I would like to see in a, a one-hour foreign policy speech from each, each of them. I'd like to see them lay out their view of uh, America's place in the world and American military policy in the world. And the second thing is we have to be very careful as uh, people who are genu- generally liberal not to um, immediately dismiss a candidate's value just because there's something in their past that might bother us. That doesn't mean we shouldn't dig that up. And it doesn't mean we should, if it's important enough to us, we shouldn't disqualify them. It means let's be careful about doing that because what we may find is there is no perfect candidate um, out there, except maybe Bernie Sanders. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but he is old and white, which is these days not necessarily uh good coin in the Democratic Party. So that's what I want to say. And now, Henry, I think you're going to tell us about um, the much more policy, foreign policy oriented of the three women. Yeah, we're going to take a minute here and talk about Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard is someone I think we need to spend a whole lot of time on. And, and I know you agree. Um, Tulsi Gabbard, she's a lot of firsts. Okay. Um, she's the first Hindu American uh, representative in Congress. Okay, she represents Hawaii, but she's the first Hindu American representative, she's the per- first uh, American Samoan to be elected to Congress, as you uh, informed me recently. And she's a veteran. Okay, she's a female veteran, and there are a few other female veterans in the in, in the legislature, but it's still a rare thing. I mean, women didn't even. She's an officer, uh, or became an officer, and you know, women didn't even graduate from West Point until 1980. So, and I know she didn't go to West Point, but just to put in perspective how recent a thing it is to even have the possibility of a female veteran or a female combat veteran, although we'll talk about her deployment uh, at some length later. Um, Again, hard on my sleeve, I always liked Tulsi Gabbard. When she was called one of the rising stars of the party by Nancy Pelosi way back in, I think, 2012, I agreed with that. There's a lot of things on paper to like. Um, she has come out against a lot of different Mideast interventions and wars. She's branded herself as sort of an anti-war vet, which, you know, we always say is, is a rare thing, too rare. And that's certainly the angle you and I come at. Um, I don't think there has been a fight since 9-11 that you or I have really supported, except for the initial campaign against al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So, th- so there's a lot to like there. But we've already discussed some of the shortfalls, and, and, and it, it just turns out that when you scratch the surface, right, when you scratch below and get the, the guild, you see that there's some really disturbing stuff here about Tulsi Gabbard. And, and, and it's disturbing to me personally, not just because I disagree with a lot of her stances or I'm concerned with a lot of her stances. It's disturbing because I am personally disturbed that uh, that I like her so much or that I did like her so much and therefore feel torn on this issue. 
but some stuff has come out. Um, we've discussed her uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, rights uh, statement referring to uh, gay marriage proponents as homosexual extremists in the past. And that doesn't line up with a lot of her domestic progressivism. Okay, She's been very strongly economically progressive and, and mostly, mostly socially progressive. Then there's her flirtation with this uh, Hindu nationalist movement in India led by the uh, Hindu chauvinist Narendra Modi, who is their prime minister. This is a guy, uh, we've briefly touched on this, who may or may not have been behind uh, whipping up the crowds in an anti-Muslim pogrom okay, in the, uh, in the district of which he was governor or mayor or both at one time or another. And Tulsi Gabbard has joined with the Republicans on a few really distressing issues, and I'll mention two. Henry, you remember when Barack Obama was president, you know, back in the bad old days when we were going to become communists and Al-Qaeda was going to take over and he was secretly a Muslim. You remember those scary old days? Well, when Barack Obama was president, this silly, silly man thought that it was wrong to use the phrase radical Islamic ick, I see, terror to describe terrorism that comes from the greater Middle East. Now, the reason he did that is because there's nothing particularly Islamic about terrorism. I mean, suicide bombing and, and suicide in general is essentially not allowed in mainstream Islam, just like it isn't in most world religions. And what Obama said was we have to be careful with our terms. Islamic just, just refers to being of Islam, being of Muslim faith, okay? And of course, 99% of Muslims do not engage in violent jihadi terrorism. Whereas the term he did like to use, Islamist, I-S-T, terror, referred to something much more specific and much more accurate. And that is those who believe that Islam should frame in a theocratic way how a government is run. And so Islamist terrorists are those who pick up arms or strap on a suicide vest in the name of creating a worldwide uh, Islamic theocracy. Okay, so it's an important contention there. There's an important distinction. But white, Republican, angry, male America couldn't handle it, right? That They thought that Obama was being too soft on Islam, too soft on terrorism. Because a lot of these people truly believe that we're in an existential fight between the Christian world and the Islamic world. I think that's a really dangerous framing, but make no mistake, Ann Coulter thinks that shit, okay? She does. Well, Tulsi Gabbard, who should have known better, should have known better, having served in the Middle East, having been an educated woman, having been a woman, okay? Having been a person uh, from a minority group, a person of color, she should have known better. Instead, she joined with the Republicans and denounced Obama for not saying radical Islamic terror. That, that's distressing. And it may sound like a small point, but it's not. Because when you combine it with this Hindu chauvinism, okay, of which she has flirted, that Hindu chauvinism is by its nature chauvinist against whom? Well, against the major minority group in India, which is Muslims. Okay, there's almost 200 million Muslims, or around 200 Muslims in India. In fact, it's the second largest or third largest, I'm sorry, uh, Muslim nation, even though it's majority Hindu, okay? Uh, the largest being uh, Indonesia, the second largest being Pakistan, and the third largest being Indian, which is interesting because none of those are Arabs, by the way. So that's another problem a lot of conservatives run into is they associate Islam with Arabism, and, and Arabs aren't necessarily Muslim, and Muslims aren't necessarily Arab. Anyway, I, I digress. And the final point I want to bring up before you jump in with some of your list, and then I, I know I'm missing stuff, so I, I can't wait to jump in with you, is she wasn't too strong on the Iran nuclear deal, okay? She kind of flirted with the Republicans on that as well, to say the least. She demonized Iran and, and thought that it wasn't prudent to, uh, to, to make a nuclear deal with them, a deal which has proven effective, a deal which has kept... Iran, according to all international monitors and all the other signees of the agreement, which Trump has since pulled out of, we are the only nation that pulled out of that seven-nation agreement, but 
you know, Iran has been following the deal. They're not developing nuclear weapons. They're adhering to the terms of the deal. Our own intelligence agencies say so. It is a good deal. It's a compromise. It lessens tensions in an already tense part of the world. And it shocks me, but maybe it doesn't after I learn all this new stuff, that Tulsi Gabbard was lukewarm towards the Iran deal. And that's just the surface of it. Isn't that right, Henry? Yeah, there's there's a lot to say about Tulsi Gabbard. And... I'm took in taking notes for this episode. I looked through the lens of president-elect Tulsi Gabbard, President Tulsi Gabbard. What would that look like, and what would be the things that I would have questions about for her becoming a nominee? So she did resign her position at the DNC in support of Bernie Sanders um, during the 2016 primaries. I consider that a a, a, a a really great move politically and a, and a a great thing to support Bernie because we, you and I, Danny, we both adamantly support Bernie. Absolutely. Um, Then I started looking at some of her beliefs about uh, gay marriage and after going through it, it it, it really, I wonder how much it's going to affect other areas. Uh, Quote, Hawaii Democrats, LGBT caucus supported her opponent in 2016, when questioned why, um, which the same caucus had actually supported her three years earlier, had turned against her, the chairman cited two things. One was her less than stellar answers to a questionnaire the LGBT caucus had sent. The other was a 2015 interview with Ozzy, in which she confirmed that her personal views on gay marriage and abortion hadn't changed just her view on whether the government should enforce this vision of morality. Quote, um, this is, and this is from the Aussie article. Um, she tells me that no, her personal views haven't changed, but she doesn't figure it's her job to do as the Iraqis did and force her own beliefs on others. She did meet with president Trump at the white house for a possible position. Um, and there was a, uh, an op-ed that she did about the same time. Quote, since 2011, the United States, working with Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, and Turkey, has been providing support to, quote, rebel groups, and quote, fighting to overthrow the government and take over Syria. A recent New York Times article reported that these rebel groups, supported by the United States, have entered into battlefield alliances with the affiliate of al-Qaeda in Syria, formerly known as al-Nusra, end quote. And this is the last little part of the op-ed I have here. How can the United States work hand-in-hand with the very terrorist organization that is responsible for killing of 3,000 Americans on 9-11 boggles my mind and curdles my blood? End quote. So it's clear that the connections Saudi Arabia holds to al-Qaeda and the the myopathy that Americans have towards those facts, those are both definitely diseases that Gabbard suffers from. Next, in, uh, she supported um, al-Sisi in Egypt. Uh, in 2015, uh, two years after he orchestrated the worst mass killing of protesters in modern history, a smiling Gabbard appeared next to a grinning Sisi on a visit to Cairo after she praised him for showing, quote, great courage and, ex- and leadership, end quote, in the fight against, quote, extreme Islamist the- uh, ideology. Hey everyone, I really hope you're enjoying the podcast, but truth be told, I need your help. No, I don't need you to move a couch or borrow a leaf blower. No, I need you to hit pause on your podcasting app right now and share this episode with somebody you know, somebody who you might think might be receptive to it. It could be a a friend or relative who's considering joining the military or a veteran you know who might be interested in, in hearing a little more truth in their news about uh, military and veterans. We rely on you all to help us reach as many people as possible. So please hit that pause button right now and share this episode with somebody. Sharing all done? Good? Okay, good deal. I know Uncle Al will cuss a lot listening to the episode, but he'll appreciate it when the cursing stops. Now I want to mention something about Patreon. We are always in the market for more Patreon supporters. So if you get the chance, please come out and support us. You could support us for as little as a dollar a month. And what do you get for your dollar, you ask? Well, 
you get a one-minute drop on any topic you choose once a month. Just email us your question or comment, and we'll give it the old Henry Danny breakdown on air. Guaranteed to have 60 seconds of our time. We may spend more on it. Um, We prefer to do military and veteran topics, but whatever topic you think might be pertinent. And we may spend a whole bunch more time talking about it, depending on the topic. And for contributors, a bit north of a dollar a month, we have some bonus episodes, some essays of mine, and a few other things as well. We're still in the process of, of building our rewards, so if you have any suggestions for Patreon rewards, please let me know. Now, back to the podcast. Fortress on a Hill is expanding. We're going to start doing chapter series as part of our lineup. There are some topics that are simply too big and important to leave to discussing in a single headline. And with that in mind, I'd like to thank all of our honorary producers who are helping us do just that. We rely on the support of our patrons through Patreon to help keep the podcast a success. Thank you to Matthew Ho, Will RNs, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James Higgins, and James O'Barr. Anyone who contributes $10 or more a month on Patreon will be listed here as an honorary producer. And to all of our contributors on Patreon, thank you for helping us do this. You know, I'm seeing a trend already, Henry, and it's a trend of Tulsi Gabbard cozying up to Mideast dictators so long as those Mideast dictators, at least nominally, are anti-Islamist. Okay, and I'm always going to use Islamist. And I actually understand that because she sounds like a lot of my soldiers. Okay, and I understand why a lot of my soldiers are very, very sensitive about Islam and are very, very sensitive specifically about Islamist terrorism because they've seen their friends killed. They've seen how extreme and how uh, chauvinistic that version of Islam can be, political Islam. And so there's a tendency to then say, well, taking this to its logical conclusion, anybody who's secular or anybody who at least opposes al-Qaeda or opposes Islamists must be a good guy. And so you take her meeting, which I'm not sure if you were going to mention it, with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. She's like the only or one of the only U.S. congresspeople who was willing to meet with that monster, okay? And, and what, what does he have in common with Sisi, who is a murderer? Sisi is a mass, mass, mass murderer. He is a general who led a coup that overturned a democratically elected government in Egypt. Now, we stood right behind him pretty soon after, or at least when Trump came in and said he's doing a bang-up job or a tremendous job. He likes the word tremendous. But so, so now we've got Gabbard backing al-Sisi, mass murderer, and backing Bashar al-Assad, mass murderer. Well, you have to look for commonalities. I don't want to just bash her. I want to understand her. And I think I might. She, whether she likes to admit it or not, appears to have a degree of bigotry against uh, religious Islamic people. Or at least against Islamists in any form, even if they're not necessarily a threat to America. Because she's willing to back, it appears, strong men in the Middle East so long as they are also anti-ISIS, anti-Al-Qaeda, anti-political Islam. Well, Danny, the one commonality that I've seen, and I think it's kind of where the tree really branches out from the ground, is that she has some very strong connections to Hindu nationalists. Um, this is a, a, little, a little excerpt from uh, The Intercept. Dozens of Gabbard's donors have either expressed strong sympathy with or have ties with the uh, Sang Parivar, a network of religious, political, paramilitary, and student groups that subscribe to the Hindu supremacist exclusionary ideology known as Hindu, uh, Hindutva. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. According to an intercept analysis of Gabbard's financial disclosures from 2011 until October 2018. Um, 
according to their analysis, at least 105 current and former officers and members of U.S. SANG affiliates affiliated with that party and their families have donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Gabbard's campaign since 2011. So there, there's even a, a, a little j- joke here um, that she, uh, her ties to Hindu nationalists in the United States run so deep that the progressive newspaper Telegraph India in 2015 christened her the Sang's American mascot. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that her, her early connections with Modi and that drive, the, the very clear drive we're seeing in donations from those people, I think it all branches from a, 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 her idea, her version of, of Hindu nationalism. Look at the fact that she uh, gifted Modi, I can't remember the name of the book, but the religious text that Hindus follow her personal copy. She gave it to him. If, if we were thinking about in terms of somebody giving somebody their personal Bible, their, their childhood Bible or something like that, that would be huge, but it's not, we don't see it in that same context because we're a mostly Christian nation. So then we get to some questions I had about her deployments and, and some of these are conjecture on my part, but I really think that they're important questions. Um, her first deployment, she was at LSA Anaconda um, doing casualty collection work. Um, Danny, what's Anaconda close to? I couldn't remember. Well, Anaconda is, uh, is northwest of Baghdad, I believe. It was the largest, I think it was the largest logistics support area in Iraq during the main years following the invasion. It was a huge air base, um, and it was, it's right in that... Uh, the eastern, the eastern, like northeastern part of the Sunni Triangle, that you get right. further west, and you're getting into Fallujah, Ramadi, um, and then over to the border. So she, I, I haven't been able to find her specific MOS, but I saw in a couple places that she's listed as an ad- administration clerk, and working casualty collection with your unit in, and and she was working alongside the hospital there. I'm sure that was a difficult job. It was a, a seeing people's names come across the board that she knew or even didn't knew, uh, didn't know, excuse me. Um, but she was given a combat, combat medic badge. She's not a medic. It's like a, <laughs> it's a basis for the award. You have to have a medic MOS. Um, and you usually have to be attached to a frontline unit in order to get it. Um, how did she qualify on a, on a, just on a basic level? I'm just curious. I mean, I just think it's a really good question. And here's one for you, Danny. She also received a meritorious service uh, medal as an E4 for this deployment. Um, Unheard of. I, 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 um, that's huge. That's the, that's, uh, um, an, an old platoon sergeant of mine. He'd been in 13 years, a former drill sergeant, really sharp guy. He got an MSM on his way out of the army. That was it, you know, but, but I mean, this is just ludicrous. Here's the next one. She used her R and R time to go to London to give condolences to London officials over the London bombings. Um, she claimed that it was kind of a spur of the moment thing. Um, but she opted to do that instead of going home to Hawaii for her R and R leave. Um, it really sounds like that it was something that was planned ahead of time because she even got an op-ed published in the Honolulu Observer about it. You know, that, I mean, that, that is an odd thing to do. I mean, I, I don't want to question her motives yet until I know more, but that is an odd thing. And just to jump back on that MSM, the Meritorious Service Medal, um, the standard, okay, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but in my career, the standard for an MSM was usually a company commander, okay, a senior captain, who took his unit to combat and then completed another year in command at home, mm-hmm. would receive an MSM before he PCS, before he moved to his next job as a major. That was pretty common. And not every company commander got one, okay? So we're talking about guys with 10 or 12 years service, usually two deployments, um, at usually at least one combat deployment in command. That's the kind of folks that usually get it. And, and then sometimes their first sergeant as well, yeah, you know, who, yeah. who by that point has usually been in the Army 14 to 18 years. 
will also get an MSM at the completion of commanding or being the assistant to the commander of an entire unit, an entire company. So, I mean, it is, I, I actually didn't, I never knew it was even plausible to get that as an E4. I, I guess I just assumed, because, you know, she becomes an officer. Uh, I guess I just assumed that's when she would have gotten her MSM. No, it, uh, it said that she got it, got it during the deployment. And I got a little quote here from her op-ed on it. She said, uh, I've had a very nice R&R traveling through Europe, but for me to be here in London to pay my respects in person has been the highlight of my trip and the perfect ending to my vacation. As a proud local girl, former state representative, and a soldier fighting against terrorism in Iraq, this was truly an honor and a treasured experience. I couldn't ask for anything more, end quote. That, she was 21, if I, if, or uh, about-ish. Why was she doing this at that, that age? She says that she resigned because she felt conflicted about being a state representative and serving in the military at the same time, yet she took her R&R trip to do that. So then we move along a little bit, and she becomes uh, an officer. She currently holds the rank of major in the, in the Hawaiian National Guard. And that led me to a different question about that. Can, should or can elected officials be officers in the military at the same time? And alongside that, how far out the, outside the box could she really step? You know, if, if, if I mean, she, she grew up in politics. And so I, I can, you know, I can sense the, you know, the, 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 the nature of that, you know, kind of learning to groom your language and being eloquent. And I'm not saying none, any of those are bad things and that her words on their own aren't good, but it really paints the picture of somebody who's always looking to the next thing. And they're looking, and, and again, we're talking about guys, you remember the, that age, Danny, you remember leading troops that age. Could you have imagined any of your guys would do something like this on R&R? No, my guys were too busy marrying girls from the internet that they never met. <laughs> well, there is that. There is it, 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 no, it's, it's, it's a very odd thing. It's, it, it does, you know, again, it's very difficult to judge someone's motives, and I'm, I'm really careful about it. But that's an odd thing. It's a, it's a very political act. Um, it, it, it's, it's definitely not typical. It doesn't mean it's a, a bad thing, but it does show, I think, it appears to show political um, ambitions well beyond a 21-year-old, well beyond an enlisted soldier on R&R from a deployment to Iraq. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. All right. Now, <clears throat> now we're going to listen to uh, a couple clips here. This is a speech that Gabbard gave at a conference for the Christians United for Israel. Extremist terrorists, there must be a three-pronged strategy. First, to take decisive, strategic military action, working with regional partners on the ground. Second, take a country-by-country country or region-by-region region approach to supporting political solutions that will take away the oxygen that has allowed groups like ISIS to exist and thrive. And third, take actions to counter the radical Islamic ideology that's fueling their terror, which is being inculcated in a new generation of terrorists through madrasas and being used to recruit foreign fighters from around the world. Well, there you have it. She used the term Islamic terror instead of Islamist terror, which may sound like a small thing, but as we've discussed, it isn't. Okay, it isn't a small thing. Um, there's no doubt that she's cozying up to the Israeli right wing with her discussion. I mean, nobody likes ISIS. No one thinks terrorism is, is a good thing. But this notion that there's a worldwide war between Hindus and Muslims, which I fear is the way her mind works, or between Christians and Muslims or Jews and Muslims, or that she has to, you know, say what the American Israel Christians conference or whatever they're called wants, wants her to say, which is they want to hear her talk about the next generation of terrorists and how they're being grown up in madrasas. I mean, there's no, there's no distinction made there between madrasa, meaning school of religion and madrasa meaning isis version of a madrasa right that's like that's like saying that you know every catholic school creates uh priests who molest children right yeah. that, that, that it's the equivalent i mean in other words 
the vast majority of madrasas don't don't create ISIS fighters, you know. So the first two pages on their on their website that I got that clip from include videos from uh, Colonel retired Oliver North of Vietnam War crime fame and uh, Dr. Sebastian Gorka, former Trump advisor and racist asshole. Um, then we move on to one other clip that I wanted to share, and it's, it's specifically on the subject of torture. And through all of the research that I've, I've seen so far, I've never seen her disavow torture as a policy of national security. So here's the clip. Let me ask you in the end, as a soldier, how do you respond to the much-discussed uh, report on the CIA's use of torture uh, and, and, and what, what some Americans have called a blot on American values? Do you share that opinion, or as a soldier, do you have a very different perspective on the use of torture? Um, very bluntly, I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted on this report. There are, uh, I think the jury is still out on the report itself. Uh, there have been comments that there are things missing or it was incomplete, and there, there are differing opinions on the report itself. Uh, but I, as I think about it myself, uh, clearly we would not like to see any human, uh, any person around the world being treated inhumanely. Uh, on the other side, I can also understand uh, that any of us, if we're in a situation where our family or our community, our state or our country, is, is in a place where, let's say in an hour, a nuclear bomb or an attack will go off unless this information is found. Uh, I believe that if I were the president of the United States, that I would do everything in my power to keep the American people safe. Uh, so this is, this is an area that uh, I have conflicting feelings on. Although, of course, there are questions about whether torture actually leads to uh, the correct intel, right? Yeah. That debate carries on. And that debate carries on. There are those who uh, are uh, in the position of conducting these interrogations, some who have said it does uh, work. It does, and others who have said uh, it doesn't. So what do you think about that, Danny? Uh, highly disturbing. Um, her equivocation on torture is oh so 2004. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that's how I feel. I mean, that doesn't sound a lot different than Dick Cheney on Meet the Press, right, in 2003 or four, saying how, oh, you know, and when there's a ticking time bomb out there, we might have to play on the dark side. I mean, her whole idea that we're going to know there's an imminent attack in an hour, and unless we torture some dude, we're not going to be able to stop the attack, just shows like a, a profound misunderstanding about how intelligence work really happens, what analysts really do how many months and years are put into building these cases against individual terrorists. I mean, when she talks about, well, we might have to torture someone because in an hour there could be an attack on the World Trade Center again. I mean, that's the key for Sutherland 24 yep. TV version of how torture works. And it just ain't the way. I mean, if she's going to position herself to the right, okay, of President Obama on torture, that's highly problematic because we all know Obama was a moderate. Obama was a moderate, and even he said, no, no enhanced interrogation techniques. You follow the Army manual. You don't add anything else. You know, no euphemisms. He used the word torture. He said, and I, I respect what he said. He said, I mean, a lot of people didn't like it because he seemed a little flippant, or maybe he seemed a little, like, um, not, you know, not, not as consoling or empathetic. But he, he said in a speech, he said, you know, a lot of bad things happened uh, during the Bush administration. And you know what? Frankly, we tortured some folks. And, and, and I actually thought it was actually a good way of putting it because he put it in a common American language and he used the word torture. He yep. didn't say, oh, we enhanced interrogated a few motherfuckers. You know what I mean? He was like, yep. look, he we tortured some folks. And she's not willing to say the word torture? She, that's a decision. Okay, that, that, is a, that is a decision on her part not to use the word torture. She's very careful about not saying it, isn't she? Yeah, she's, she's very, very careful about it. Did it seem to you a little bit like the reporter – was kind of leading her a little bit. It seemed like there was some statements there. And then at the end, it's, or as a soldier, do you feel differently? Like somehow we, you know, that, that plateau, that American real right-leaning militarist spot, that soldier's word, you know, J John Kelly and fucking Sarah Sanders and their bullshit about, you know, you can't question a four-star general. Lots and lots of yeah. people believe that. Um, so yes, I, th I thought she was leading. I thought it was leading question. Um, the very presumption that a soldier would have a different view on torture, which is internationally, uh, it's against international law. It's an international crime, right? So, uh, and it has been since like 1903. 
the, the, the fundamental premise that a soldier should, could, or would, uh, or would be entitled to having a pro-torture opinion solely because said person was a veteran, I find actually insulting as a veteran. Because yeah. uh, I, I know the oath that I took to the Constitution. I, I, I'm aware of the values I'm supposed to serve. And Absolutely. as an officer, it was my job to make sure soldiers didn't step over the line. And I watched them a few times come real close and had to step in. And, um, you know, we, we waterboarded people two, three hundred times. Same individual. If you're not ready to call that torture, you know who did call it torture? The Nuremberg trials. The United States leading the Nuremberg trials, which were the war crime tribunals after World War II, sentenced Japanese officers to hang by the neck until death for waterboarding American soldiers. So I guess it was torture then, huh? And uh, you know who else thought it was torture? The Spanish Inquisition, who mm-hmm. loved to use the water cure, who loved to use, that's just another word for waterboarding, okay? So, I mean, look, if you're not willing to say hard and fast, I'm against torture, I don't know. I just, I don't know what to make of that in 2019. I don't know what to make of that. Again, it sounds very neocon circa 2005. In, in 2014, when the Senate torture report came out, Bernie Sanders put out a statement in support of what, what was in it and that torture was unequivocally wrong in any use, no matter what. She went and did this interview. This was, this was her equivalent of doing what Bernie did, essentially. And you, you, you segued into it perfect, Danny, about that she's now an officer. And specifically, she's a military police officer. And so that, that hits home for me a little bit. I wasn't an officer, but I was an MP. The only people who've been truly punished for anything related to torture, not including whistleblowers, were the soldier underlings at Abu Ghraib. These troops were mostly military police, if not all of them. And now that Tulsi is literally a leader over soldiers who may be asked to guard or work with detainees on future deployments, it, it, really, it really presents some hard questions. My thought is, what would she find acceptable? Jim Mattis came out and said that he thought a pack of smokes and a beer worked a lot better than torture. Jim Mattis. And his, I think his nickname is mad dog. Okay. This is not a soft guy. This is not a soft dude. So, you know, I, I, I hate having him as a yardstick for this, but she's to the right of Jim Mattis. And that really tells you something, you know, at, at first her meeting with Trump, I was like, I don't know what that's about, but now I know it makes perfect sense why she had that meeting. It's very disturbing. You said she's an officer and she's a military police officer. So I'm going to extrapolate something else from that. As a military police officer serving the United States Constitution, she is obligated, specifically as an MP, to follow the terms, conditions, and standards of the Army Field Manual on Interrogation, Mm -hmm. which means any of the techniques that she's hinting might be okay are illegal. They are illegal for her to subscribe to. Illegal. And, you know, I've read the Army Field Manual on interrogations. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, hey, you got to follow these rules unless there's a ticking time bomb, unless your family's at stake. There's no caveats. It's like, this is the law of the land. And she's an officer? Come on. That's Honestly, it's an – her answer is immature. It is seriously intellectually immature to answer with those kind of caveats. I mean, it's just – it's bumblefuck is what it is. It's actually unbelievable. She's better than that, or I, w- or I hope she is, or, or I wish she is, or wish she was. The, the, the frightening thought that I had is that she sits much closer regarding torture to somebody like John Bolton or Tom Cotton. You and I have discussed Tom Cotton on the podcast a few times and how amazingly fucked up of an officer he must be with his beliefs. Um, and so I, I find her fundamentally unqualified to do the job, let alone to be a congressional representative that sits on several committees that affect national security. She's on foreign affairs and she's on the armed services committee. And again, like we were talking about earlier with the whole veteran soldier is better. We need to trust them is that she's real thick with that. That is, that is how she layers everything, how she coats everything. And there are lots of people, lots of mainstream centrists and Republicans that are absolutely fine with that. Um, and there's something else here, Danny. The Washington Examiner pointed out that she would be the first soldier president 
since Ike and the first serving officer to be president since Truman, since he was an inactive reservist during his elected term. Ike resigned his commission before entering politics, which I personally think would be the ethical thing to do. What do you think about that? Should an officer keep their commission entering politics of any kind? You know, there have been a lot of National Guard officers serving in Congress. Uh, famously, Lindsey Graham mm -hmm. at one time. I think he might have been a JAG, however, a lawyer. Um, you know, Strom Thurmond, a king racist himself, was actually a, a National Guard Brigadier General, I believe, and a veteran of Normandy and yada, yada, yada. It's not unheard of. Uh, I do think it could be problematic. Um, and so I'm going to say two things. Number one, if you're going to run for president, if Ike knew well enough that it was ethical to resign his commission, then I think that that standard should work for just about anybody, given who Dwight Eisenhower was and the kind of man he was. So I don't think the president should be serving in uniform because I'm very, 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 very in favor of civilian control of the military. Unequivocal civilian control of the military. Uh, as to whether she should be able to serve in the National Guard while being a, a representative, uh, I'm willing to debate that, but I do have one concern. Uh, I've been under investigation uh, a few times, once pretty in-depth, uh, for expressing uh, my opinions in an op-ed because I was a serving officer. Um, even though I very carefully followed the regulations, you know, some of those regulations are, well, open to interpretation. You know, who's to say whether one's words are contemptuous of the commander-in-chief, right? That's, that's squishy, isn't it? Uh, or, or contemptuous of the Secretary of Defense. You know, I never thought I was doing those things. And eventually the Army sort of exonerated me or at least just gave me like a minor verbal reprimand and, and, and passed the case uh, into the netherworld of paperwork. But, okay, if I'm – now, here, here's the thing. Can she really hammer Trump if she's serving in uniform? I mean, couldn't he – realistically say you're being contemptuous or couldn't, I mean, couldn't he judge, especially a guy who's seemingly as sensitive as, as our commander in chief. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I could see how it would limit um, the scope of her views and debate. Um, I would like to think the department of defense would never try that, right. That they would never try to um, scale down the scope of opinions that a congresswoman was able to, you know, was able to, to, to give publicly, but it, it, it raises questions. But I do think as a presidential candidate, I even think as a candidate, she should resign probably. Um, but that's a personal opinion. I, I'm not sure what the law says uh, or if it says anything. My guess is it doesn't say anything because on most issues, our constitution says absolutely nothing. I mean, quite frankly, because um, they, they didn't even imagine some of these possibilities. But we do know that the founding fathers were very scared of military coups. They were very scared of military influence on civilian government, which is why they specifically placed war declaration uh, power in the Congress, okay, in the civilian Congress. So there's one more element that I think you and I need to, to hammer out a little bit, and, and we're kind of at the end of the, of the who, who Tulsi Gabbard is train. Um, but the element that we haven't discussed is the – what I'm calling the progressive gag reflex. Tulsi Gabbard has a lot of very favorable positions to the progressive left. And I believe that there's a lot of argument about whether or not she's qualified based upon those alone. You know, she brings that she is in favor of no more regime change and that she supports better standards for sexual assault victims in the military. Those are all good things in and of themselves. Um, but is that a reason for her to be the commander in chief? To me, she's way, 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 way too close to the mark. And especially given that her political grooming began at a very, very young age, you know, that, that, um, it, it seems like it's been her entire life. Um, if she was, you know, doing trips to London as a, as a 21 year old, there's that, that tells me something, you know, that, that, you know, ambition or just drive to do certain things, but it, but it's not what 
kids my age were doing back then, especially on R&R. And we got the guys that had to fly further, which was, which was true, you know, going from Iraq or Afghanistan to Hawaii, it's a lot further. You have to go and you have to go the opposite way around, around the globe. Um, but people got extra travel days. So they made sure that they had those days at home with their family. So it, it, it's just odd to me that she, she wouldn't do that. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry on, on president Tulsi Gabbard. No. Um, and I also would not, would not agree with the idea of her being a vice president to anybody, anybody that we might support even tangentially, even if, you know, if we were okay with, I mean, even if it was Bernie, no, I wouldn't find her acceptable in that first cabinet either. Yeah, you know, I'll be honest, until I did my homework, my full homework on Gabbard, I mean, I would have seen her as a potential vice presidential candidate. She would have been somewhere on my list. But, you know, I'm sick of, I'm sick of settling politically, you know, as a guy who plays around on the left for the most part, I am sick of settling. We can do better, can't we? Yep. Can't we, can't we get and I'm not saying it has to be this, but can't we get a minority female who's progressive on domestic issues but isn't a Hindu nationalist? Can't we get a progressive woman of color who supports Bernie but it, it is sophisticated in her view of what Islamists versus Islamic terrorists and is against categorically against torture? Like, why do I have to compromise time yep. and again? You already made me vote for Hillary Clinton. Okay, I mean, I'm exaggerating when I say made me, but I've already been placed in a position where I had to vote for Hillary, the warmonger Clinton. I'm not sure that was the right vote. I don't know what it was. I thought it was the adult thing to do at the time. I'm not even sure anymore, to be frank. But don't put me in this position year after year where I have to settle. There are enough people. There are qualified people out there, right, who are unequivocally against torture. That shouldn't be that. To me, that's a, a litmus test. People say there shouldn't be litmus tests in politics. Well, being in favor of gay marriage and against torture, that's my litmus test. You need to be both of those, you know? And the fact that we have to settle pisses me off. Uh, I want a veteran. I want a woman. I want a person of color. I don't want just those things, but I'm, I'm attracted to each of those qualities. Sure. But we can do better. We absolutely can. We absolutely can. And as far as U.S. Army officers, we can do much better, too. Um, you know, I... I there are times where I'm actually would be in favor of somebody dragging themselves up to the army standard, but clearly I, I, yeah, I, I, as a, as an MP and especially about the detainee, you know, the connections between detainees and torture. Wow. I, yeah, no, we can, we can do better. And so far it's for me, it's still Bernie. Bernie is still, still the guy. And, um, you know, Bernie does have some questions that need to be answered about his, you know, voting for a giant military budget and other, other things. But he is unequivocally against torture. And again, I'm with you, Danny. I think both those things being for gay marriage and against torture, bare minimum litmus test for being our president. You know, I, I'm ready to say I'm, I'm ready to just tick off a few things. You know, you want my vote? In the primary, because in the primary, I can be selective. Once you put me in the general election, now you make me have to fucking hold my nose half the time. And pick. Yeah. But do you want my vote in the primary? Pretty simple. Be anti-war. Be anti-regime change. Be for a $15 minimum wage. Be for health insurance as a right. Be against torture and pro-gay marriage. So that doesn't sound like too hard of a list. Is there not a person out there who can be all of those things? Bernie is. Right? So yep. far. And he's been consistent since like the 1970s. Fucking, okay, so Bernie Sanders in the early 1960s is in Chicago getting arrested because he's picketing against school segregation. So even on civil rights, this old white dude has, you know, been consistent for 55 years. It's not perfect. He's not perfect. And, and look, I don't think we're going to find a perfect candidate, but those things I just ticked off, those four or five things, you want my vote in the primary? Show me a candidate who can do all that. I don't think it's too much to ask for. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've had enough warmongers. We've had enough torturers. We need somebody to help us lean back the other way. Yeah, I agree. I, look, I want better than Obama. You know, maybe Hell that's a lot yes. to ask for. You know, I mean, 
it, look, you look back at President Obama right now, and there's a lot of things to admire about his personal life, and there's even a lot of things to admire about his political life. But I think that in 2019 or in 2020 for the next, the next election, we deserve better even than Obama. Okay, we deserve better than the guy who kills an American citizen from the sky with a robot without any due process. We deserve better. Yes. We don't need to take a step back. We've we've taken a few steps back. Okay, and we don't need somebody who sounds like Dick Cheney on Meet the Press. That, no. that those days are no. over. He has a whole new heart. He's a robot now. We don't need any more Dick Cheney. No. <laughs> We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also on Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at FortressOnAHill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a contributor at Patreon.com. If you're not into doing a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple of bucks on PayPal. The link for that is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget that. We'll see you good people and listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not detain.